0: now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is
1: the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk, fresh meat.
0: Come on, boy.
1: So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside.
0: Welcome to Dose of Ether Episode 14. Uh, Today in... You know, now we're in 2019. Let's let's do kind of a review of where we're at. Uh, in our view, Ethereum might be stronger than ever. So, how's it going, Luci- Lucian? Uh, let's let's uh, let's chat. How you been?
1: Great to talk to you again, Bijan. Um It's nice to take some time away. Over the New Year's, I think was the first time in which I wasn't like fully immersed in um, blockchain developer updates, and I actually permitted myself to take. The first vacation in about two years. Hey, you deserve it. Uh, Yeah, it's been a massive learning curve, and it's nice to just sit back and reflect
0: and see where we're at. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most recent things that was interesting is um, ETC, Ethereum Classic, 51% attack. I think Coinbase said that over a million dollars in Ethereum Classic funds were um, reverted, what do you think about this?
1: So to explain a fifty-one percent attack, the way that it works is that some people withdraw hash power from a network and they uh, mine without um, committing um, to a specific blockchain transaction, so that they're able, for example, to uh, sell Ethereum Classic that they have on their chain, but Then, after a while, they um, put all of this proof of work that they had done in the background without committing it to the chain, and all of a sudden they have a longer chain. And all of the transactions in which they spent money um, are reverted, and the money is back in their accounts. So what ends up happening is that, um, essentially, you get to rewrite a portion of the history of the chain and uh, that permits you for example to agree to pay someone or exchange for a different token, Um, you get their tokens but because you're able to revert a chain you actually get your tokens back and you can actually um, very successfully attack exchanges this way if exchanges don't take into account um, a massive reduction in hash power um, that allows for these tax to be carried out.
0: Yeah, and it seems like this attack has continuing to go forward, at least with uh, exchanges that haven't increased their confirmation limit for withdrawals. Um, and, you know, it, it, on a high level, it just seems like 51% of the hash power is all it takes to take control of the network. So as the price goes down and and miners are less profitable um you know they they take off their computers from from mining ethereum classic and they might move it to something more profitable or just turn them off altogether if it's not profitable for them and this leaves the smaller chains open to this kind of attack
1: yeah so ethereum classic was at 120th of the hash power of ethereum so you only needed let's say, to have um, GPUs that were capable of mining the equivalent of 1 one twentieth of the Ethereum network to successfully be able to attack Ethereum Classic. Um, actually, it would probably be like 1 40th, because you only need ha- just over half of the hash power to be able to um, have more proof-of-work power than the existing chain and this is something that we've seen before with several other chains it's actually not new Um, this happened with bitcoin gold most recently um, and several others and it's a known attack vector Um, the problem is is that exchanges have this kind of false dichotomy of whether or not they um, execute transactions in a timely manner on behalf of their customers um, or they wait and they hold funds to, in order to protect people from this. Um, unfortunately, waiting is the only real way to ensure that a 51% attack doesn't negatively affect the um, the exchange. Right, it makes it uh, cause more cause costly. Way.
0: You have to have more hash power for a longer time if you're going to successfully pull up an attack against an exchange. If they're waiting, you know, maybe hours before processing a withdrawal that you're requesting. And so it just gives you less opportunity to, you know, create or, or, or steal money from exchanges. Um, but what what it brings up that I find, you know, interesting and some, something that people don't often talk about is that you know, no matter how scalable and useful and formally verified or whatever technical features you want to say makes your blockchain more secure more decentralized or whatever if you don't have the value staked or the hash power working behind it to protect it from a 51 percent attack all those features are irrelevant isn't that right
1: Um, Yes, uh, I would say so, and that's applicable for proof-of-work mining specifically. Um, The weirdest part about proof-of-work is that um, there's only so much hardware that's available, and there's no real cost to uh, switching besides the opportunity cost of mining a different coin there's no real cost of switching. So Mm -hmm. since there are multiple um, exchanges or there are multiple tokens that um, allow for the same mining equipment to be used, for example, if you take some uh, mining equipment that is underperforming currently off of Bitcoin and direct a small but coordinated portion of those mining resources towards a weaker chain, it's easy to overpower it. And make more money than you would mining, um, legitimately mining and participating in a network. So it's the same thing with um, Ethereum Classic. So Ethereum actually knew that uh, trying to compete for a limited hash power on the same algorithm as Bitcoin could lead to a problem like this if their value, if their network value became large enough. So they actually changed it so that their algorithm was. Uh, optimized for mining on GPUs as opposed to um, specialized mining equipment and that's kind of uh, a, a problem because you can use your mining equipment to mine Zcash or you could switch it to mine Ethereum and that switch actually allows for a coordinated attack that doesn't necessarily have an economic loss for the attacker, besides the opportunity cost if they're unsuccessful. Right. But you can measure how likely you are to succeed, just by predicting um, the capacity or the total hash rate of a network, and you could predictably attack something, which is not a good thing.
0: Yeah, and I mean just the fact that you could rent hash power and apply it to whatever network you want. Um, the more rentable hash power there is to do that, the easier it will be to attack. Now, with proof of stake systems, you know, you're bringing up a good point that you know, there is a cost to switching. Uh, you're implying that at least like with proof of stake. If I want to attack Ethereum by I would have to have a massive amount of Ether um, to do a, to do an attack, you know, that's similar to this. Um, but I might also impact the value of Ether so much that, that I can't get out of that position very easily. Is that, is that kind of a way to think about it? Or how does p- proof-of-stake stake relate to this kind of problem? Um, so a
1: major uh, criticism of proof-of-stake is that if you are an owner of a token and you try to... Uh, attack a network through a 51% attack, unless there's proper slashing rules that penalize people who try to attack, there's no cost to actually trying to do this. While um, taking mining rigs offline and not committing solutions to hash problems that you come up with has a potential opportunity cost of all of the equipment that you have that's not making money for you. So you actually lose the money worth of electricity that you have right and this is because there's it,
0: there's actually it's the nothing at stake problem right that right that you you can effectively attack the network by using your stake and if you're not successful and there's no slashing conditions then the network continues on as it was and you still have your ether but if you are successful right. then now you're able to create ether out of thin air or do some some other thing that increases your economic value with no expense
1: right yeah
0: Um, and so they made mechanisms to figure out what does an attack look like um and create slashing conditions that that force you to give up some value or some tokens if you're seen doing things that look like an attack
1: exactly yes and that has been one of the more complicated aspects to figure out in proof of stake because it also requires liveliness and as you know sometimes your internet cuts out so how do you penalize people for uh, simply dropping offline versus um, intentionally taking your stake offline or trying to uh, withhold transactions in a way that manipulates how um, how transactions are being recorded on a blockchain and These are basically the biggest problems that remain to be resolved, but um, the the hack of Ethereum Classic is just a validation of the philosophy of mainnet Ethereum to move to proof-of-stake. And it just shows that eventually, if the economic conditions create the incentive to uh, 51% attack any network, then we should move to... um, at least a more game theory, uh, optimal solution in which there is no
0: winning in trying to attack the network. Right. And, um, you know, the, there have been some developments on the roadmap side for Ethereum. Um, but most of the focus has been on Constantinople and this upcoming hard fork. So we know that, you know, many teams are working on proof of stake and, you know, that, that roadmap for 2.0 for Ethereum is in progress. being built um but Constantinople was the most recent set of changes that we're supposed to go through and this hard fork that would reduce the issuance rate would delay the difficulty bomb and um you know would would create some improvements for quality of life for developers and so on that's been delayed now what can we say about this delay is that a good thing for ethereum or a bad thing for ethereum
1: So the Ethereum uh, hard fork delay of implementation of Constantinople is good because they actually found a vulnerability before someone else did. It's difficult to move and update an open source community through such an informal network. It's strange opening Twitter and having everything um, being an alert saying to upgrade client immediately after another upgrade to prevent um, these um, promised improvements uh, to be delayed but I think it's actually a good sign that the maturity of the practices and security um, minded individuals who participate in the Ethereum network has evolved to such a degree that um, this vulnerability was exposed before it could ever be executed and I think that's a really important and sign for a mature blockchain especially a sign of its community's maturity if they're able to show that um, they can detect these types of edge cases um, before an attacker does and implements it themselves then um, it's probably best because no one lost money no one was harmed and this can be put in direct comparison to something like the DAO hack, which, had this uh, ecosystem been more mature, it might have, um, as it was now, reported and fixed before it could be exploited.
0: Um, yeah. It's, so it's you know the lack of code audits in other projects that make it you know such a security hole to uh you know in their in their networks because there's so many things that they don't know if they're not auditing um or getting independent auditors to look at their code i mean it's a very common thing in software development Uh, you know having quality assurance is you know necessary outside of the development team themselves because you know when you're so close to the code it's hard for you to maybe even see how it could be exploited um but I think I agree with you that the foundation clearly has the funds to be able to uh, get the code checked uh, for critical releases. And this hard fork has a lot of support. You know, it's not a contentious issue and we're not creating, you know, I, I, it doesn't seem like it's going to create a, a sustainable fork as a separate token. Um, so there's a lot of support for this. It reduces the issuance rate we're, you know, they're catching critical defects before it's released. So these are all good signs, and we should be proud of the fact that, you know, Ethereum has 99.99% uptime. And, you know, the only problem, you know, the biggest problem was really that DAO hack that was very, you know, problematic, obviously. But we saw the outcome for Ethereum Classic, you know, they forked off of the main chain because they didn't agree with the governance decisions at the time of the DAO hack. And look what happened now, you know, they're 51% attacked just based on the fact that they couldn't get enough adoption to keep their hash rate up. And so, you know, it just goes to show that having that network effect, those developers that are looking at the open source code constantly, having the money to be able to audit the code when major changes are happening, um, and just, and, and and having a philosophy that People can get behind, namely moving to proof of stake and having a, a, a next generation super com- or a, a, a world computer. Um, these are all good things for the, for the network.
1: Yeah. So Constantinople doesn't yet uh, implement proof of stake, and it's not a very contentious hard fork. So um, I actually heard a proposal to adopt the terminology used by Zcash and they prefer uh, network upgrade. That's mm. essentially what it is. The reason we call it a hard fork is because if you're running an older version of the client, you're not going to be able to sync with the rest of the network that's upgraded. And in the end, it's um, very much the uh, developer team that's running a specific node to upgrade um, a um, to a newer...
0: Uh, client software yeah i mean sure it, calling it an date. upgrade is a nice thing um yeah. but it's not real. i mean it is a hard fork so I, I think if people disagreed if enough people disagreed with the changes in this software upgrade then you would see miners stay on the old version and create a new token um yeah. calling it an upgrade just kind of uh it makes people think that you can. It kind of, uh, it's a way to bias the conversation in a way. Toward, bias is sometimes I mean,
1: necessary because not every hard fork is contentious. Yeah,
0: um, I. I mean, yeah, I agree. Ultimately, if if it's not contentious, then you know it won't be a problem either way. But calling it a hard fork gets the hype going. You know, people dump, you know, poured into ETH so that they could get this second token, which we always see before hard forks. That do create new tokens, you know. People want to double up or whatever.
1: Um, so no one's asked you when they could uh, trade in their Constantinople Ethereum <laughs> tokens because um, they don't want to keep this forked token. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, uh, it's basically easier to adopt existing terminology, um, and I wouldn't say that for most. Uh, for most instances, um, having a far hard fork um, in order to implement technical changes it, that aren't contentious um, doesn't necessarily need to have the negative connotation that it does um, in other situations. And yeah, it also, in order to have a, um, a token, that springs out of a hard fork it means that there has to be a community of miners that continue running that software right Right. so ethereum classic its uh, reason for being could be that it's an ethereum that just kind of stagnates at at its initial successful point right and And, and Some people inf- want it in, case it in case mainnet Ethereum breaks, <laughs> because they are pushing uh, experimental software and um, occasionally they, it's, uh, it's actually quite interesting that they found a security vulnerability right before implementing the change and that they were able to basically um, alert the network in a timely manner before it was executed. I I can't imagine how big and interested the open source community surrounding this project is because if you think about it, there could be like a Linux distribution and an operating system, and if your operating system is compromised, that could compromise everything, like your the cryptocurrency that you hold if it's a sufficiently bad um, security bug in your operating system, and. Um, those kinds of bugs happen all the time, it's just that the way that they're uh, upgraded is they issue a patch and because it's an operating system most people are encouraged or recommended to automatically update. Well, with blockchains we can't have push notifications to update your client software because of the decentralized aspect of it. and. You kind of need the users to, um, to basically act cautiously and only accept um, updates that they trust from a stable release uh, unless they're on a development team and they're uh, getting the nightly builds. They want a stable version of the client because they are trusting their money that the software runs properly
0: yeah i mean this definitely gets into a lot of gray area in terms of the ethics around these kinds of tools because you know it's it's definitely possible to create an auto update feature and i know that those are contentious features to add to wallets and nodes and all this stuff that uh, the ecosystem relies on but also you know vitalik making a pitch to the guys at coinbase to upgrade their software is also a little questionable right like you know I, i don't know there's there's this weird, weird case that you know people want upgrades. Um, they expect everybody else to do the the research to figure out if there are vulnerabilities. You know the foundation. It ended up being an audit that the foundation had commissioned um, that that found this issue. Well, why aren't you know why isn't Augur and Maker and all these other companies why aren't they investigating the you know the whether the code is broken. Um, on the, uh, the platform that their software needs to run. I mean, they spend so much time building their smart contracts. This code for Constantinople is not new code, as far as I understand, and they didn't catch it sooner. So obviously there's urgency around a release, so I get that. But, you know, why aren't more people looking at this if they have such a vested interest in the protocol?
1: there's not as much incentivization incentivization to be a core blockchain developer as there is to um, build a dApp on top of Ethereum so if you build a a dApp, you issue your own token if you're a core developer and you weren't issued tokens during a pre-mine, as was the case for very few people in Ethereum if you think about it, um, then they don't have the same kind of incentive structure it's like asking why people don't work on their own startup versus the laws of their state <laughs> um, yeah i mean it's I, kind I, of the it's, context it's in which you, you have, have control it's con- you have but a I a free rider yeah. problem right you have
0: a lot Definitely. of people that rely on the ethereum network they trust that it's going to work they expect other developers to 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 do security audits and they're going to benefit from the security that it offers the people who really have a vested interest are, like, the, the Ethereum Foundation, the token holders. Um, the token holders don't have any real, you know, competence in investigating code, probably. And, and so, you have this, this feeling of security because it's, you know, not being hacked and there's a lot of economic value relying on it. Um, but there's, you know, this kind of... It's, it's kind of uh, a mask... On the reality of it that that yeah it's a 15 or 20 billion dollar network um and if it could be hacked you would expect it to be hacked right but if there's not a lot of people that are actually um you know there there, there just could be really negative downsides into the future if everybody just trusts that other people are are looking into it
1: there there's an interesting uh tangential story and um if you've ever heard of DEF CON, with an F, D-E-F CON, yeah. it's a large hacker conference in Las Vegas, and they've introduced smart contract hacking as part of their main competition. And the interesting thing is, is that people aren't reverse engineering the source code of Ethereum to find a vulnerability. They're reverse engineering smart contracts on top of Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they're doing this is because um the current stable version of the ethereum client just like the bitcoin client is very secure relative to other pieces of software right because the amount of value that is stored Actually dictates the level of security and precaution that needs to be taken by the developers. So there's this really interesting concept in um, like ethical hacking, and the idea is um, assessing the likelihood that the piece of software that you're building is a target, and. If you build high-value uh, systems, then you have to have a very high degree of certainty. Um, so you have to have like a lot of processes put into place that you don't make errors. And right,
0: like sending people to the moon. You probably don't want to. That's a no-fail scenario.
1: Exactly. Yeah, they have a, they have a threshold for how many um, bugs they can have in their code per like lines of code, and it's a quantifiable measure. Um, and for um, early um, space exploration, the type of code that they send to the moon, for example, or um, to some other kind of space exploration project has something like 1 in 100,000 or 1 in a million lines of code. And this put into comparison for solidity code that on average had like something like 1 in 100 or 1 in 10. I have to look up the exact statistics, but it was a very stark uh, contrast in that there was a lot of errors in Solidity code generally, um, while like h- hardware that's being programmed had a much better ecosystem for developing bug-free code that made sure that the quality control before code is sent to outer space is... Um, more reliable. The irony being that code that is put on Ethereum needs to be just as reliable as code that you put in hardware, because once it's deployed, unless you have the mechanisms pre-programmed into place, you won't be able to change how it works.
0: Here's so. the odd thing about this whole thing: is that it, it ends up being the case that there, you know, part of the reason that people aren't hacking rockets is because you can't really benefit from that other than like terrorism, right? But right. if you have all of these products that are, that are built, you know, on top of Ethereum, but they have huge security holes because smart contract developers are not, you know, <laughs> dotting, dotting their I's and crossing their T's, um, well, that's where all the hackers are going to go, right? They're going to go to the easiest target. And often in the real world, it's social engineering, not even hacking. <laughs> That which uh, password which is essentially
1: stuff. what they did with Ethereum classic Ethereum classic is more of a social engineering hack than um, an actual error within the client
0: hmm.
1: right there wasn't a coding mistake this is right. simply using or abusing the types of uh, mechanisms and systems that exchanges have in place um, against the exchanges. By right. So, changing yeah. the state of uh, an entire network.
0: And and it, the funny thing is is as long as there are unsecure smart contra- or insecure smart contracts on on Ethereum that carry a lot of value, they are going to be the target before the protocol itself. So it's secure as long as the smart contracts on top of it are not secure. And it actually it brings up an interesting, you know, parallel to. You know, things like EOS or Tezos, where, let's say in the case of Tezos, there's formal verification. So you would think smart contracts are going to be a lot stronger in terms of being able to be hacked on Tezos because it's formally verified, or at least the smart contracts are, you would expect. But in in that case, there's going to be maybe more interest in attacking the protocol itself and putting everybody at risk, at least in the case of Ethereum. There are a lot of attack vectors on each of these smart contracts, perhaps, but at least it's fragmented. At least the impact is decentralized. Um, And so when Parity gets hacked, you know, or their smart, multi-sig wallet has an issue, well, you know, it only affects those users and that company. It doesn't affect the wider ecosystem. But if there were one of these major bugs to get through, um, like the Constantinople one it could cause massive, massive havoc and actually, you know, make it hard to recover from that breach of trust.
1: That's true. Yeah. Um, Being able to attack a client is also a major, major threat. You have to realize that uh, Ethereum has having two main clients. There actually are a lot more clients now um, made by small startups uh, like Pegasus, um, that was built by a team at ConsenSys. But mainly the fact that Ethereum has both a Go implementation and a Rust implementation in Geth and Parity, that's actually very unique. And Bitcoin doesn't have multiple main clients. Although Parity does make a uh, Bitcoin client, as a strange side note. I don't know if it's recognized as an official client. I doubt mm. it, being a Ethereum company. Um, yeah, so,
0: I mean, all, all this to say, you know, it, it does look like it, it, there's a lot that you can attack Ethereum for, but it's stronger than a lot of these other systems uh, in a variety of ways. So like you're pointing out it, it, against Bitcoin, having, you know, having competing teams on competing clients, you know, uh, it's, uh, having uh, a lot of the economic value tied up in, in smart contracts, uh, in, you know, versus Bitcoin, where all the economic value is in and the Bitcoin tokens right so a hack a, an attack on Bitcoin protocol is more likely because there isn't this whole network of insecure smart contracts that could be easy, easily hacked you know so like if-
1: so um, to go down that point there's actually a really good example um, and it was a bug that a developer intentionally inserted into
0: the Bitcoin client. Yeah, and this is something. It's it's a big worry. I've thought about this a little bit. Tell us more about that that specific one.
1: So um, the backstory is that there was a Bitcoin ABC, which is one of like the recent forks. I don't keep up with them honestly, um, but one of the developers from Bitcoin ABC looked into the uh, historical commits of one. Um, of a pretty obscure piece of code and they realized that they secretly like introduced a vulnerability that was about to be merged into the main code base and had the network upgraded and implemented this new system then all of the clients that together comprise the bitcoin network would have had an exploitable vulnerability crazy Uh, so it's there's a difference between the clients and the protocol. The protocol is how the clients talk with one another. The clients themselves is what actually sits on the metal on your computer at home and that's running the piece of software and it's main, and it's running the protocol and it's keeping it alive by having multiple people around the world being able to share that same protocol and keep it running. Um, but it's kind of crazy that Uh, because of I think the complexity, the size, the maturity, there's over ten years of uh, development on one piece of software, Um, you eventually have lines of code that people don't really remember entirely what they're supposed to do. So you can take advantage of um, let's say a privileged position as, um, as a Bitcoin developer and submit An improvement that has unintended consequences um, that only you know about and then you can just wait and you've introduced a vulnerability into the network and you can exploit it by targeting the people who've upgraded as they should uh, you can actually exploit this vulnerability by uh, being able to change the way people's
0: machines interact right Um, and and this is where it's also a risk to be moving at the pace that ethereum is you know with these you know this pressure to increase scalability and competitors like eos catching up um they're they're more likely to make mistakes whereas on the bitcoin network they've got 10 years of history to show that their you know slow development pace is is probably a good thing you know it's it makes it harder to attack um
1: yes, and um but ironically the uh, the attempted hack that I'm talking about happened at the end of last year. <laughs> so the complexity of um, the Bitcoin protocol itself has evolved, and they have very like they have uh, they still experiment and they still consider putting in experimental cryptography. they still. For example, lightning channels were itself a uh, fairly radical, actually quite controversial, depending on who you ask, idea. And um, there are some people who think that the Bitcoin project already works well enough and let's not risk any more. But I think uh, everyone in the Ethereum space can safely agree that it's worth risking, it's worth um, innovating and pushing forward and trying to get it right um and it's still uncertain how to prevent making mistakes in the future but if you could catch them before they become of consequence then it's always better than having a community that passively accepts um changes that are made without actually kind of digging deeper and investigating yeah i think that's i think that's really the biggest risk it's um Unforced errors on the yeah, parts of developers. Um, it's very easy to make mistakes in software, and it's very easy to um, take advantage of those mistakes in a cryptocurrency ecosystem. It's made for adversarial net, uh, networks. It's because there's a lot of people that are willing to take your tokens if you mess up.
0: I mean, yeah, and, and then you think um, the governance system... When it's more top-down governance, it's actually easier to get fixes to these kinds of problems into the network more efficiently because you have a team of people. They're like, "Hey, let's go fix this bug. Let's let's get it out the door. Let's con- let's talk to the guys at Coinbase and every other exchange. Let's get them informed. Let's get them helping on it." But then you got a system like Tezos where you have an improvement proposal that's agreed upon by proof of stake voting. Um, and now you've got a situation where if a bug is introduced, like how quickly could you even reasonably have another vote, get people on board, you know, uh, and, and mitigate the issue. Like it's actually it's
1: a double-edged sword, right? Right. <laughs> it's uh, it creates the ability to do a 51% attack on a proof of stake system. If you could introduce intentionally vulnerabilities into the system, um, but yeah, it's uh, it would still require you to acquire fifty percent of the uh, total outstanding t- uh, tokens, and in assuming everyone aligns against you, and you're not able to hide your actions whatsoever.
0: Yeah, I mean it. it it's still proving out to be experimental. Um, but the twenty eighteen is now at a close, and distributed applications did. Over six and a half billion dollars in transaction volume. That's just the DApps, not even the networks like EOS and Ethereum and and Tron actually, which has has been doing a lot uh, apparently. Um, but that's a significant amount of transaction volume and 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 dollars that are being moved around uh, in these totally decentralized applications or distributed applications um, with EOS actually eking out the top spot on dollars transacted, um, but Ethereum still seems to have the more active users, the higher volume of DApps on the platform, uh, and frankly, the more you know, future-looking or innovative solutions like Maker, Dai, and uh, Augur
1: uh q the sweaty former ceo of microsoft screaming developers developers developers, <laughs> developers right? right um <laughs> it's um it's an ongoing race and i don't think ethereum should get complacent but i also don't see it getting complacent um having a lot of fun watching the innovation and just paying attention to this space over the past year was mind expanding in how many new possibilities um, were introduced just by following the ethereum ecosystem so i agree Uh, there are definitely some competitors um, as they get more mature maybe uh, eos will become more serious of a competitor Um, but we'll see they already have a proof of stake system implemented and ethereum had to take one step back from that goal as well so it's to be
0: seen. Yeah, I think that's that's a a whole other topic that would be interesting to get into. Um, But yeah, with EOS, it it is got it does have a few things that it uh, is already better than Ethereum at. And uh, it's hard to argue that uh, Ethereum would be faster or more scalable for your DAP today. Um, And, you know, with the constant delays of the 2.0 roadmap, um, I could see why you know why a lot of the betting platforms and the gambling sites that are doing a lot of volume on EOS today chose that platform. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it, for these kind of not super game changing applications. You know, they're running on EOS. They're they're working, um, and EOS has a huge war chest. They've got a ton of money, and they're you know there's no transaction costs for for you know, making these transactions happen on the platform. So you're getting a lot of people involved. um, And Ethereum has pressure on it to get some of the the speed and scalability updates so that uh, it it doesn't draw developers away from the platform.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, EOS also doesn't have uh, transaction costs. And um, it's probably... Incorrect to compare daily daily active users um, on a platform that does have transaction costs versus one that doesn't. Um, that's just my primary instinct because it's really easy to uh, fake metrics if there's no um, actual costs.
0: Right, um, you I'm can. Not, I'm not you, could anyone you could literally. You could move. Anything. Yeah. But yeah, you can move a hundred thousand EOS from one wallet to another that you control and nobody would know how that's different from real transactions and you um, lose
1: nothing uh, exact, because there's no nothing.
0: actual cost. Um, so there's a big vested interest for the, especially the block producers and everyone else who wants to promote this, you know, EOS is the best kind of uh, narrative that they're going to, they're going to inflate the numbers. Um, Right, and we've already um, seen so... collusion with their block producers. So, uh, I, I heard
1: that they do have a different kind of computational limitation on their network, and I think um, I forgot if it's RAM. Yeah, they have or... they have a
0: RAM they have a RAM system. Uh, right. So there there's definitely some costs implied, but there's no gas cost like a direct cost. I mean they they're just running on really high powered machines there there it's not really a fully distributed ledger that you know is being run on thousands of devices and has a real economic cost Um, i
1: think um it was like 18 computers that essentially need the requirements of being housed in a data center um both because of how much it costs to be a validator and because of like the specifications that are required to basically meet the demands of the network. It basically is likely that it's just in 18 AWS instances spread across the world.
0: Yeah. And and it doesn't cost anywhere near as much in electricity to power it. Right. um, Compared to Bitcoin or Ethereum. And you know what? It, that that's it's a different platform. They have different design goals, and it's. But it is really important that um, that Ethereum catches up because every day that EOS is not taken down and hacked, and you know we're not hearing bad news about EOS, is it keeping staying alive and and getting more trust put into it? You know, people naturally trust it more as it continues to succeed.
1: We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but there's also the aspect that there has been some bad news um, previously. I think we covered it, um, specifically letters being published of uh, coordination between validators and how yeah, and, and there were that threatening was totally... emails basically saying that you need to eliminate certain transactions because accounts were hacked. Um, Governance is Crazy. also an issue too, and if you only have, so let's say, eighteen validators, then coordination isn't just likely; it's almost
0: guaranteed to happen. Um, but exactly, and but I mean, I think with at least we can see with Ethereum that it has. I mean, it, all a, a lot of the legitimate um, projects that are building. You know, very innovative things they're building on Ethereum. I'm not. I haven't seen any brand new ideas being tested on EOS that aren't kind of copycats of what's on Ethereum. But then again, if you look at the iPhone Android war, you know, in the beginning, a lot of things on Android were just copycats of of iPhone. Um, but some of the benefits, namely that Android was in way more hands, uh, way more people's hands, much quicker because of cheaper. Handsets led to led to the platforms being very competitive on the app front. So, um, you know, if EOS can make it easier to develop and make your dApps more scalable and, and uh, e- easier to adopt for consumers, then Ethereum can't rest on its network effects and its developer community for too long.
1: Yeah, I'm personally not that interested in working off of EOS because of my fairly limited uh, understanding of their network architecture it's hard for me to see how i would benefit from the way they've set up their network i am excited to look at other projects that are radically different than ethereum and i think this is going to be a year of experimentation and kind of like the understanding that we've now entered a multi-coin world Um, i think it's going to be interesting to build a lightning application, a Layer 2 project uh, using Bitcoin. I think it's uh, going to be a necessary learning exercise for me. Um, I'm interested to use DFINITY. Um, the concepts behind Threshold Signatures really excite me. Um, I'm very interested to use Polkadot and that is definitely going to be my next project. I'm going to be building my own blockchain using Substrate um, even though that isn't fully built out in terms of like the public uh n- and connected multi-network uh platform that it's going to be hopefully um those are the ones i'm excited to
0: work with yeah right i now. mean i'm i'm excited for all of all of those things as well like just like polka and cause cosmos and these these like you know kind of Interoperability or layer, like a layer on top of other blockchains. You've got Blockstack coming out that's going to change the game in a lot of ways. You've got a lot of cool projects. Um, Filecoin is coming up, you know, hopefully in twenty nineteen. But then you have like just raw technical improvements, like zero knowledge proofs and Snarks, Snarks and Starks that um, will change the game once again. You know, we didn't even talk about it, but Mimblewimble and Grin and Beam. Um, these these new kind of platforms are changing and, and are drawing a lot of attention because of how brand new the thinking is. Uh, even you know, ten years into cryptocurrencies, we're we're coming up with a, a lot, or not not me really, but uh, there are a lot of researchers coming up with a, a lot of really important innovations for the ecosystem as a whole. And I don't think we can say that any any of these projects have won just yet.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'm actually looking into all of those. And uh, my New Year's resolution, if you could call it that, is to figure out um, how this paper by the Zcash Foundation called ZEXE, that's basically a zero-knowledge-proof smart contract system, would work. They published uh, the um, people who created zcash published a paper and i that just blows my mind (laughs) that it's even possible to have zero knowledge proofs as uh validators of smart contract transactions and there's so much crazy crazy it's the combination of all of (laughs) those
0: yeah i mean because that that's one of those holy grail type technologies that would allow you to get a lot of the benefits of decentralization, um, but a, you know, without a lot of the costs <laughs> of running these really, really intense you know ledgers that have to download and process every transaction, and you you eliminate all this anonymity. There's a lot of benefits to zero knowledge proofs in scalability, in um, you know an- anonymity, and and all sorts of other areas that remain to be explored, but it could enable, you know, the features that we were hoping to get with Bitcoin in the very beginning. Um, but it, it might sidestep a lot of the problems that um, I know teams have been facing in trying to figure out scalability. Um, it, it's weird that zero-knowledge proofs kind of help out with that, even though they're, they're really designed to uh, make people, or keep transactions anonymous. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think a lot of
1: people have focused on scalability in this past year, and not enough people have uh, focused to, on privacy as well. And I think uh, that's actually going to be the focus of a lot of, a lot of my work this year. Um, I think privacy-preserving blockchains should uh, become the standard, and um, the fact that Ethereum is so exposed and open is um, actually mind-blowing. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I eventually blockchain systems will outgrow this pseudo-anonymity. And because it has such strong cryptographic basics, they'll be able to go to like full privacy preserving. Um, and I think it'll happen... Uh, within the next three to five years whether it has to happen at a layer one solution or a layer two solution i don't really care but i find those solutions um, even more exciting than scalability solutions mainly because i'm not a core developer i'm more of a dApp developer (laughs) so uh, i find the utility that comes out of privacy preserving um, smart contract systems Um, Very interesting. Have you heard of something called the Aztec Protocol?
0: I'm I'm not familiar with that, now.
1: So the Aztec Protocol basically has uh, the functionality of um, Zcash built into an Ethereum smart contract, and they're able to hide the amounts transacted between two parties using zero-knowledge proofs that are verified on-chain. So they've recently got a consensus uh, financing of, I think, like, $23 million. Don't quote me on that sum. Exactly. But um, very end of last year, they actually have the code up and running. They have some uh, demonstrations of how it works. And, um, yeah, they essentially implemented a privacy-preserving smart contract on Ethereum so they yeah, basically and, use I mean,
0: this and that, yeah yeah no i mean that, that because it's a turing complete language you should theoretically be able to program anything right but yep. um, i know that the ethereum core developers are adding features to be able to allow these different types of cryptographic tools to be used but that the, the evm is super inefficient for doing this stuff and so um, you know, I think we're we're not at a stage where, but but uh, ultimately, it seems like the Ethereum team is going to watch all of these ideas incubated by other teams, and then whichever ones bubble up to the top as being super useful, they'll put on their roadmap, and and it'll it'll get done at whatever pace. the The question that we'll see how it plays out is, um, will any other smart contract platform catch up, um, or will Ethereum be able to? get all of these features and benefits in, um, quickly enough to stay on top.
1: Yeah. I, I honestly feel that's kind of what they did with the uh, DFinity and the idea of totally. random beacons. I feel like they totally, um, kind of like internalized and then changed, uh, their interpretation they're doing something called uh verified delay functions yeah these um, are
0: huge I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this stuff plays out yeah because- I,
1: i'm pretty sure that's going to come out within the next year because of how advanced um, some of the implementations are um, i'm not 100 percent sure i'm more favorable towards the ethereum implementation which requires specialized hardware ironically um Versus the Definity version, which basically needs the liveness of a certain percentage of the network. Um, I think, um, yeah, it's kind of strange for the Ethereum community, which is pushing proof of stake and the reduction in the use of um, hardware for mining, and then they're pushing for the use of hardware for verifiable delay functions and they're actually building their own hardware um, right. I, <laughs> their I think the argument ver- verified uh, delay the function. argument here
0: <laughs> that i understand <laughs> is that they they're saying hey asics are inevitable um we can it's a whack-a-mole problem to try and get around these asic kind of specialized hardware systems so why don't we create our own make it open source and then drive the cost down? Um, by making it open source and keep you know keep the best technology of ASICs in the hands of anyone who wants to build them, and then you ultimately make it not profitable to build a better version of an ASIC that could take advantage of the network. But if you try um, and make I, it, just... I
1: agree with you yeah, there. But they're not actually trying for the same thing as an ASIC in as in mining. They're actually trying for the same thing that Definity is doing, which is having. A uh, proof of randomness oracle. Um, so, because you can use it for cryptography that you have on chain, for example, you can um, change sure. what uh, proof which stakers validating which chain randomly, be- based on this uh, random oracle that's coming out of the culmination of all of the signatures in the verified delay function. Ironically, Definity actually does this exact same thing but it doesn't use specialized hardware it just uses coin joins methods similar to kind of what like mimblewimble does and creates a combination signature that's random if any one of the participants is random right and yeah i I mean it's i heard the uh justin drake's explanation of why they made this choice and they said that they want a um, random oracle that could survive a uh, like nuclear war, even if 80% of the entire world's network uh, goes offline. Um, the only thing that would happen would be that the parts of the network that can no longer communicate after X number of months eventually start their own chain. I'm like, okay, cool, but if there's nuclear war blockchain isn't going to be the first problem that we need to solve i (laughs) i
0: I love i love that they're thinking about you know the future and preparing for world war 3 to make sure ethereum (laughs) is still online and, uh, Personally,
1: I felt like the World War III argument was almost an excuse
0: not to completely copy Definity's idea. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> they had to make they had to make it slightly different and and give a, give a reason for it. A World yeah, War III. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, fi- I just find it weird that they actually resort to a hardware solution when a lot of their solution is in the direction of making a needless
0: waste of energy um well maybe we can maybe we can get somebody from who's developing that onto the show and we can chat with them um maybe not after this comment (laughs) (laughs) um so you know on that note um i think you know we've we've definitely seen that ethereum is is in some respects stronger than ever um but in many respects has a lot of uh of headwinds um, that it's going to be facing. So um, I, I'm sure we'll dive into some of these topics in future episodes. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to lead off on, Lucian?
1: Um, yeah, I wanted to ask our listeners to reach out to us on Slack or on Twitter. Uh, we're at Dose of Ether. And uh, we're at the Bitcoin Podcast Network Slack page um, that you can find by heading over to their website and reach out to us and let us know the types of things that you're excited for this year, the types of things that um, you're looking forward to exploring in this space, and um, also the types of shows and conversations that you'd like to have. So one of the ideas that I was thinking of is talking to some of the implementers of various um, scaling or improvement Projects. Um, there's about, last I checked, 16 different implementations of Plasma, um, and very few of those teams actually have uh, a lot of media exposure or explain what they're doing. Um, and i think it'd be interesting to talk to various organizations that are working on improving any type of blockchain project be it ethereum or dfinity or anything of the sort um, and get a unique um, maybe like non-mainstream perspective uh, on the space and um, kind of expand my own understanding from uh, their perspective as well. So well, I mean,
0: I think it, in, we, we talk a lot about a lot of these projects and it'd be great to um, hear from the implementers themselves so they can give us the pitch and also correct us in some, in some ways um, where we might misunderstand or, or, um, or, or something else. So I'm supportive of that idea and I can't wait to hear what some of our listeners come up with. Um, and until next time, uh, thanks Lucian for, for, uh, co-hosting this and the Bitcoin podcast network for publishing and to our audience, uh, look forward to chatting with you on the Slack and Twitter to hear about what you want to see in
1: 2019. Great. Nice talking to you.